federal retirees just got the final piece of the puzzle to calculate next year's cost of living adjustment, the COLA. The COLA amount changes, though, depending on the federal retirement system you're in. A 1% difference for 2024 might not sound like that much of an impact, but over time, getting a so-called diet COLA every year can create a big difference in your retirement savings. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And if you would, Drew, just review for us the type of COLA and how it connects to the annuities. I guess that would be people that are still around under the SERS system versus the bulk of employees who are under FERS. That's exactly right, Tom. There is the difference in the COLA based on whether you are a SERS or civil service retirement system employee versus a FERS or federal employee retirement system retiree. So between those two, the the SERS retirees get the full COLA amount, whatever it is that the Social Security Administration announces uh, for that coming year. This year it was 3.2%. But for FERS retirees, those in the newer system, which started up in the 80s, they get a reduced COLA. The How much it's reduced by depends on how big the COLA is overall. For this year, it was a pretty big COLA. So FERS retirees are getting essentially the largest disparity possible under law, which is a 1% difference. So they have a 2.2% COLA coming to their federal retirement annuities in 2024. So in a sense, the compounding of interest that gives people this great savings over a lifetime works almost in reverse. If you've got the reduced COLA, it multiplies itself downwards over time. That's exactly right. And that's the argument that you hear from a lot of federal organizations, federal unions, and even the retirees themselves saying, you know, the, even though the goal was kind of to balance out or make it fair between the SERS retirement system and FERS, the difference over time is much, much greater than you might see just for 2024, for example. It might only be a $50 or $100 difference, but if you project that out over much longer, then there can be a, a pretty big uh, financial impact there. And some people have actually calculated this to the dollar amount over 20, 30, even 10 years, right? That's right. I spoke with uh, John Hatton. He is an expert at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF for short. And the data that NARF collected shows that if you project it out over 30 years or 40 years, depending on how long a retiree lives, you know, even if it's a $100 difference in any given year, if you look 20 years out, for example, you could see a loss of tens of thousands of dollars. If you look out even to maybe 2050, so another 27 years from now, that cumulative loss will hit about $100,000. So this does have quite significant impacts over time compared with, you know, if you think about, oh, just for 2024, it's a 1% difference. That's not all that much. And, you know, organizations like NARF say it really compounds over time. Now, there are lots of variations on this. If you were a pure SERS employee, never had another job outside of the federal government, you don't get Social Security, but you get a presumably a bigger, fatter annuity. But then you have the WEP and some of the uh, holdbacks on Social Security if you did have another job. So there's that wrinkle. And then there's the FERS people who just get a reduced COLA because they still have some annuity but also Social Security. And so it's kind of a strange mix here. Why did Congress set up the FERS this way, do you think, in the first place, way back in the 80s? They must have had a rationale. No, you're, you're right, Tom. And it, there are a couple of things that do make this situation complicated. But if we're looking just at the FERS retirees and when that system was set up back in the 80s, the idea from Congress was to try to keep things fair between 
the upcoming FERS retirees and those who were part of the older SERS system. So the FERS annuity, it's you can think of it as a, a three-pronged approach to retirement. That's how people generally refer to it as. So you have Social Security, you have the FERS annuity, and you have the Thrift Savings Plan. So the idea was, okay, if they're getting all three of these things and SERS retirees don't see all of those things, then we can, re- Congress said, you know, let's reduce the FERS annuity COLA to help align with the overall value. So, you know, that was the rationale. But of course, you, when you look at the numbers, you have a lot of retirees, those both in SERS or FERS saying, you know, this isn't really fair to, to FERS retirees. So the argument now is in favor of the regular COLA that everybody else on Social Security gets for the FERS retirees on the basis of just equity for for Social Security. Right. You know, not not everyone is going to be in agreement, of course, but generally there is pretty strong consensus for, you know, let's give FERS retirees the full COLA and essentially like help them get the COLA that is meant to adjust against inflation and uh, better protect the value of their retirement savings. So there is a call for that. Right. And there's a legislative gambit pretty much every year, right? That never goes anywhere. That's right. We've seen the same bill pop up for several years in a row now. It's called the Equal COLA Act. This is something that has been House and Senate legislation. It was introduced this year by Jerry Connolly and also in the Senate. And it would give first retirees the full COLA amount for their annuities. We haven't seen a ton of traction on this, but you know, it's something that we see a lot of organizations still pushing for and and lawmakers keep reintroducing it, I suppose, with the hope that over time they'll build enough support for that legislation. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, as always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of her stories on FERS and COLA and Diet COLA and retirement at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.